0: Welcome back to the Spartan Street Podcast. This is episode 29, The Castes of Sparta. When I started this show, back in November of 2019, I had only one true goal. To the best of my ability, I wanted to tell the complete Spartan story, and not just their extensive highlight reel. Apart from some significant digressions, I'm looking at you, Jason, and your merry band of Argonauts, I feel I've done precisely that. The popular view has the Spartans exploding onto the annals of history during the Greco-Persian Wars where they carved for themselves with bronze and iron, a niche within our imaginations. This is but a fraction of the proper story. There is much that comes after those brave 301 souls, not forgetting Leonidas, and their stand against an eastern potentate hell-bent on Hellenic subjugation. And there is also, as we've seen so far, much indeed that came before. It was to the start of this legend that we first turned, teasing out the tales of legendary Spartans who graced the epic poetry of Homer and the Age of Heroes more broadly. We followed, as best we could, the remnants of that legend through the darkness that engulfed the Mediterranean at the close of the Bronze Age. Taking the narrative right through to the Iron Age, the rise of the city-state and the rediscovery of language, tectonic and momentous times that saw the re-emergence of Greek culture in its archaic form. This allowed us to narrow our focus somewhat to zero in on a faction of the Dorian peoples who, along with their cousins, had swept into the Peloponnese during the dark age of Greek history. This group had settled in first one, then two, and finally four villages along the banks of the Eurotas River. Nestled between the mighty Taygetus and Parnon mountain ranges, these peoples benefited from the exceedingly fertile Laconian plains surrounding them. Although never fully synoicized even in later times, the inhabitants of these villages came to be known collectively as the Lacedaemonians, or as we like to call them, the Spartans. We tracked their expansion across first their home range of Laconia, and then their conquest of neighbouring Messenia. It was this event that set Sparta down its unique road of development, and contributed more than anything else to the view of the mighty warriors we see on the screen and in our minds. A revolution began in this society somewhere towards the end of the 8th century BCE, and it continued in fits and starts. For the better part of 200 years. By the time we get to an actual historical account from Herodotus, who picks up their story in the mid-550s, the governmental, religious, societal and military practices were, more or less, solidified. We haven't had the boon of relying on Uncle H or Mr Thucydides as of yet, save for small mentions here and there. Nine of the past 11 episodes have been designed to flesh out the development of Sparta and her people during this period. When King Leonidas steps into our story, you, my dear listeners, will understand where his defiance, courage, and obedience came from. In fact, while we're at it, if anybody is still listening and has been here with me since the start, thank you so much. That anyone has listened to my show is so very humbling. The good stuff is coming very soon, but we aren't quite there yet. This episode will put the last important piece of the puzzle in place – explaining the final facet of importance to the picture I've tried to paint. In the next episode, I will attempt to summarise and crystallise the idea and concept of the archaic Spartans. It will be a truly mammoth task, and one I cannot do alone. Well, I could try, but it would be terrible. So fortunately for you all, I have enlisted some help. More on that later. I asked several, somewhat rhetorical questions in my introduction to the Spartan History podcast. One was, how did, at best, 8,000 Greek soldiers become the dominant military power in classical Greece? The answer is a simple one, they didn't, at least not alone at any rate. Briefly, if we look at the Battle of Plataea in 479 BCE, we see perhaps the largest Spartan force ever sent beyond the Peloponnese, an impressive 45,000 men. What's that I hear you say? But Steve... You just said, at best, there are only 8,000 Spartans. Well, there's clearly no getting past my extremely intelligent audience, but this is no oversight, and still true nonetheless. In fact, there are only 5,000 homoioi hoplites present at Plataea. There were another 5,000 Lacedaemonian hoplites, made up mostly from the various periarchic communities scattered throughout Laconia and Messinia. but the vast majority, the other 35,000 men, were from the helot or slave class. Spartan-class structures were heavily stratified and case-like, by nature and by design. You can draw tangents between medieval feudalism and also Hindu culture, but neither of these truly satisfied the vast array of complexities at play between the Spartiates and their supposed lesser classes. Clearly, things were heavily nuanced. Were they not, then 35,000 helots would have been impossible to marshal to fight for their captors. Moreover, they simply could have went over to the Persian side And thrown their lot in with Xerxes, who was very generous in rewarding those who knelt before his godlike power. This, of course, never happened, and Plataea remains one of the Spartans' most stunning achievements. For the contingent of Perioikoi, too, denied the full right of Spartiate citizenship, and for that matter, full political enfranchisement, an argument could be made that even they may have had much to gain from the Spartans' demise. Herodotus tells us they fought as hoplites as they did at other times beside the homoioi. They were not simply a class of artisans, blacksmiths, and farriers. Throughout Greece, the ranks of the hoplites were made up of only the most wealthy in society, those who could afford to arm, armor, and support themselves in the preponderant style of war for the period. So, our goal in this final segmented episode will be to look at the various subcases of Spartan society, mainly the helots and perioikoi, but aside from these extremely broad castes, there were other, narrower ones. The Mavakis, adopted non-citizens with full rights, and the Hippomionis, former citizens who had failed their qualifications, are but two. There are, as we'll see, many more. These classes make up the, historically speaking, silent multitude of people ruled by those red-cloaked warriors. Let's turn to them now, and give them some much deserved, though often neglected, attention. Cue the drums. Let's start with the bottom of the Laconian heap, the Helots. They were at the same time an anomaly in ancient Greek civilization, but also, in a sense, a very common part of it. Slavery was nothing new to the Hellenes, the practice of bonded or indentured servitude being one almost universally practiced across their civilization, and for that matter, the entirety of human history. Aristotle even classified people at the most fundamental level into two categories, slave and non-slave. He considered it to be an extremely natural phenomenon and saw slaves as merely a living tool with which one could derive a benefit through use. Just like the cow is a living slave of sorts to its milker, or a hammer, an unliving one. Nonetheless, the anomaly of the Helots lies not in their bondage, but in the fact that they were Greek. It's important to note at the outset that this underclass of Spartans could be loosely broken up into two groups, the Laconian and the Messenian helots. The former were first subjected to Spartan domination in the early to mid eighth century BCE, and the latter fell under their eastern neighbours' sway in a gradual fashion from the end of that century in a process that continued until the year 500. Now that's an arbitrary number, but it will serve as a terminus for the conquest of Messenia and the subjugation of its people in entirety. Regardless. The Helots to the east and the west of the Taigatis mountain range were all Greek. As we've seen previously, when the Dorians migrated into the Peloponnese, they supplanted the populations of Achaeans still in the region post-Bronze Age collapse. In Laconia, these descendants of the Mycenaeans surely made up the bulk of the Helot population. To the west, however, the losers in the First and Second Mycenaean Wars were of Dorian stock, cousins to the Spartans. Every bit as fierce and warlike as their eastern neighbours, the yoke of slavery was never going to be a great fit. Every rising up of the helots against their masters, and there were many, began in Messinia. We'll come back to that. The term helot derives itself from the Greek for to be captured or made prisoner of war, an etymology that is extremely cogent with the way in which the helots were brought into servitude. There has been some conjecture, both modern and ancient, that the word comes from a plain to the south of Sparta and the town situated within it both called Hellos. Pausanias, in his description of Greece, mentions it was in that place that the first people became slaves of the Lacedaemonians. Despite an apparent similarity between the term Hellot and the place Hellos, the latter nonetheless comes from the Greek word Elos, which means marsh or swampland. Situated on the eastern bank of the Eurotus and close to the sea, the Hellos plain was indeed marshy in antiquity. Now These halots were also called the common word for slave used throughout Greece, doulos, by some ancient writers. Oiketes, or house slave, was another term used for the halots, but like doulos, couldn't correctly encapsulate the complexity of halotry. Discussions over the nature of halot slavery, or for that matter slavery in general, is purely semantic especially for those who have suffered the yoke, but it behooves me here to try and define it as accurately as possible. Chattel slavery that is the complete ownership of one individual by another, has been possibly the most abject form practiced by humanity over the course of history. Sadly, there are still parts of the world where it is practiced. In this definition of slavery, whoever has ownership of the slave has complete control over their fate. There may be some broader state control going on in the background, especially around rules of manumission, but for the most part, the slave owner is free to do whatever he or she wishes. Whilst in Sparta, each individual Spartan had the right to summarily execute or punish a helot, even though it appears that no individual Spartan owned a slave. In fitting with the Lycurgan doctrine, a personal slave would be considered a luxury, and all such were banned from the homoioi. Therefore, it stands for reason that the helots were the property of the state itself. Hence, the state, in this case the Board of Ephes, ritualistically declared war on the helots annually thus absolving any Spartan of the pollution generally incurred via the crime of murder. There was definitely helots within Laconia whose conditions resembled chattel slavery, but a better and more popular definition can be found in the feudalistic practice of serfdom, a type of indentured servitude that although having many similarities to the previous definition, also had some important differences as well. Serfs were common through much of Europe during the Middle Ages, but the practice survived well into the modern era, with most of that continent outlawing it during the 19th century. They had some rights by comparison with chattel slaves, namely land tenure, marriage, and were generally not alienated from their homes at a whim. They could not be sold by individuals, but were entirely tied to their given piece of land. If that lot was sold, they were sold with it. A type of non removable living property. The land and the surfer as one the Hallots shared a great many features of serfdom. It's thought that the vast majority of them worked for their Spartan overlords, the very lands their ancestors once worked for themselves. As we've seen previously, one of the most important boxes to tick as a Spartan was the ability to provide the correct amount of food to qualify for Scythia membership. Indeed, failure to do so precluded a Spartan warrior from full enfranchisement. Banned from any practice other than war, it was the Hallots' primary function to provide the mess hall quota. The earliest reference to Helots spells this out implicitly in the words of the poet Tataeus. They are like donkeys, exhausted under heavy loads. They lived under the painful necessity of having to give their masters half the food their ploughed land bore. Writing Perhaps during the Second Massanian War, Tataeus mostly gives us the bellicose poetry that was needed to galvanise the Spartan effort to quash the uprising of the recently enslaved Messenians. Unfortunately, that fragment is all we have from that particular poem, so it is difficult to understand the context. Was it this demand that caused the revolt, or was he simply describing halotry in more general terms? Either way, it's extremely instructive in that their masters, that is the Spartans, took half of the produce to feed their families and supply the Jews. It's interesting too that Tataea says that the land is the helots' own. He says explicitly, their land. Medieval serfs too, in a sense, owned their land, and the debt incurred through ownership was paid down by working said land and forwarding on a portion of its bounty. In the case of chattel slavery, the indentured individual possessed nothing that could be called his or her own. This slice of freedom, if you will, made the helots a continued and growing threat. Unlike the poor, for the most part African, souls that were working the fields of American slaveholders pre-Civil War... Terrible conditions, arbitrary executions and the explicit forbiddance of union contrived at continually depleting the manpower of the ever rapacious owner class. At that time, the thirst for new labour became ever increasing in a wider world that was slowly waking up to the horrors of slavery. Not so in Sparta, where the ruling class were in continued fear of at revolt and in turn ruled with terror. That's why, as I mentioned earlier, that despite the need being at its greatest during the Greco-Persian War, the Spartans only marched 5,000 homoioi from Sparta to Plataea, despite Herodotus already telling us that they had at least 3,000 more at home. They had hold, as I've no doubt quoted before, of a wolf by the throat in the helot population. It is true that at different times they could be treated magnanimously by their overlords, though this appears to be more as a function of the failing Spartan state which began its true decline during the Peloponnesian War despite its ultimate success in that conflict. This is from a time located far from our current chronology, so we will leave it there. Safe to say that there were indeed massed manumissions and also a general lessening in the severity of their enslavement from the end of the 5th century onwards. Like serfs of the Middle Ages, they had the right of religious freedom as well. Though being of Dorian stock, many of their sacred practices were common with the Spartans' own. Of particular note for the Helots is the Temple of Poseidon, Cynarion, in the deep south of Laconia, at the very tip of the Mani Peninsula. It is the same peninsula from which Professor Paul Pardunius, friend of the show, and his family claim descent. send. This place seems to be particularly revered by the helots, and was perhaps so even before their enslavement. I think in order to have a little look at the Spartan relationship to the helots, we need to have a short lesson in rhetorical thinking. To do anything less would be to invite madness, because in the same way as most other things to do with Sparta. Every account is in conflict with the next. Despite being slightly forward of the archaic period, we'll look at helot involvement during the Greco-Persian Wars. At the very least, it will absolve me from having to go through the task in the future. Also, it has the benefit of being reasonably well recorded, thanks to Uncle H. Let's first turn to the broad facts. The Spartans were infamously late to the Battle of Marathon. The purported reason being the celebration of the Carnea Festival, and as such, they were forbidden to take the field. It does, however, seem that Spartan adherence to the gods was often a matter of convenience rather than strict form. Plato offers another, and to my mind at least, equally plausible scenario. In his laws, he infers that the Spartans were busy quelling an uprising of the helots. He goes on to say that this transpired no fewer than five times throughout Spartan history it is easy to imagine trouble brewing in the form of a slave revolt being far more important to Laconian armies than a Persian army encamped at Marathon, especially seeing as it was the Athenians almost alone who decided to spit in the face of King Darius by joining the Ionian revolt at the dawn of the 5th century. If we let the notion of revolt stay as the cause of Spartan belatedness, it makes what happens a decade later harder to explain. In 479 BCE, the Spartans marched for Plataea, with a sizeable helot cohort in tow. Outnumbered seven to one by a foe, they had only recently reconquered, or perhaps quelled is a better word. Either the helots were well and truly put in their place and to heal, all of their families were being held hostage back in Sparta to ensure obedience, or this was simply a fairly natural state of affairs for Spartan armies. Herodotus takes it in his literary stride, as nothing of particular note in Book 9 of his Histories, Worth considering too is the possibility that the numerous halots were offered the opportunity of manumission. There is record of this kind of thing occurring towards the end of the 5th century during the Peloponnesian War, but we have nothing to corroborate that possibility during the Greco-Persian Wars. And the size of the manumissions recorded were never to the tune of 35,000. I believe at most it was around 2,000 individuals. So, I discount any type of general manumission especially as the last thing the Spartans would want roaming the countryside would be such a large force of armed, fit and fight-ready ex-slaves with a possible axe to grind. Excusing the Second Mycenaean War and following Lutra, I would suggest that revolts were rarely close to a full-scale affair. Maybe Plato and Herodotus were both right. Perhaps there was a revolt of some scale, but the Spartans did intend to send a force following their religious observances to Marathon all the same. The histories record the Lacedaemonians arrived shortly after the battle with a force of two thousand hoplites. They even offered the victorious Athenians congratulations on their stunning victory. There is no mention of whether this force of Spartans was accompanied by a contingent of helots. At Plataea, the helots fought and died with the allied Greek forces present. Not as fully equipped hoplites, but skirmishers, javelinists, and slingers. They were entrusted with the duty of stripping the enemy dead and looting their abandoned camp. Herodotus goes on to say that they kept much of the spoils for themselves and sold it to the people on the island of Aena. Now this seems like an incredibly entrepreneurial endeavour for an apparent slave caste. The historian also tells us that after the battle the Spartans erected three funerary mounds, one for the young and one for the old Lacedaemonian dead, and a final one for the Hallots. Buried separate to be sure. But offered rights nonetheless. If even a sliver of that information is correct, it shows a completely different side to Spartan-Helot relations. It leaves us with two versions of the Helot story, one of oppression and fear, and another of seeming cooperation. Difficult, but not impossible to reconcile theoretically. I think there was far more complexity of interaction between master and supposed slave, more than just randomised killings. Public embarrassments and terror. It's very easy to think of helot society as homogenous, and a catch all overarching title doesn't help dissuade that view. I said at the start they were broadly split into two groups. The Laconian helots were recorded as having revolted only once in 464 BCE after a large earthquake struck Sparta. Despite being the longer enslaved portion, they were perhaps treated more fairly, and unlike the Mycenaeans, were of probable Archaean stock. The Dorian lineage of the Messenian peoples, cousins to the Spartans, was conceivably the reason for their extremely harsh conditions. These conditions led to more attempts at forced emancipation. But why would the Spartans have treated the Messenian helots any worse than their Laconian counterparts? Well, that's simple, and a recurring theme throughout human history. Whenever it has transpired that one group of people want to be rid of another, the most expedient way is to otherise the undesirables especially when there is little difference between the two groups. You demonise, belittle, degrade and disregard them. We'll leave the helots there. It won't be the last we hear from them as they are pivotal to Spartan history and by extension the Spartan History Podcast. And as Professor Paul Cartledge says, the history of Sparta is fundamentally the story of class struggle between the Spartans and the Hellots. Turning now to the periokoi class, we see here the first line of defence between the masters and slaves. Never welcomed within the Homoioi class, they were nonetheless better off than the helots and had no desire to join or take their place. They had plenty of local freedom and the prospect of limited self-determination. Enough wealth to be able to supply the armies with fully equipped hoplite regiments and when fighting with the Spartans, were collectively known with them as the Lacedaemonians. Before 464, they fought in their own sections, but afterwards were mixed in with the Spartiate ranks. Their ability to muster hoplite forces every bit an equal size to that of the Spartans should not be understated. The hoplite class across ancient Greece was entirely made up of wealthy citizens, those with the means to be able to furnish their own arms, armour, and retainers. There were no state-based means of equipping an army in those times, and indeed it was often the case that acceptance into the upper echelons of any given polis was subject to the individual being able to equip himself so. Sparta was a likely exception here. Being banned from any trade save war, as her citizens were, the Perioicoi fulfilled that function of armoury. Plato mentions that there were around a hundred perioic towns scattered across Laconia and Messenia, and he labels each one with the title of polis. The great philosopher isn't known for mincing words, And the fact he uses polis rather than the word for a small town or village, which is Komi, is telling. Therefore, these other communities, of which we know little, must have had similar characteristics to other, more well-known population centres. That is, they had an agora, a temple district, possibly located on some type of acropolis, and most importantly, a barricade or city wall. As we know, Sparta never erected a city wall right throughout the entire archaic and classical periods, and it was for this reason that Plato referred to it as not a true polis, but as four separate, unwalled villages. As with the Helots, we shouldn't think of the various periodic communities as a homogenous entity. Except for Githion, which served the Sparta's port for all intents and purposes, the other cities were largely independent, self-sufficient, and diversified in their methods of production and sustenance. Just so, being denoted as a polis implied complete, or at least a large degree of personal freedom. The question of distance from Sparta contributed to this, and as discussed, the Spartans had enough to deal with in keeping the helot population under the thumb. That isn't to say that Lacedaemonian hegemony wasn't oppressive for the Perioikoi too. I think the mere fact that we refer to them only as a collective, rather than individuals of a given polis, shines a light on that. We have Thebans from Thebes, Corinthians from Corinth, but, for example, no Pelannans from Palana. Assuredly, people were known like that in the ancient world, but posterity remembers them only as a collective. Looking at the archaeology of the remains of these communities, there is little evidence for large-scale religious or civic infrastructure. This shouldn't dissuade us from Plato's assignation of polis status, as even within Sparta there is scant left archaeologically to speak for her former power. There is no reason to suspect that tribute in form of gold or silver was levied upon the middle class. A. The Spartans had no need of such, and B. Could simply, by right of might, levy what was required, whether it be material, produce, or weaponry. We know not the diplomatic relationship formed between Sparta and the individual periarchic communities. My thoughts are, save for one overarching principle which we'll come to, The alliances were all varied and specific to the towns themselves. If a town or area was rich in a particular commodity, resource or skill, then that perhaps formed the central tenet of that place's commitment to Sparta. The one thing every treaty had in common was the Perioikoi would follow wherever the Laconians should lead. A levy of hoplites seems to have been required from each town and if we take Plataea once again into account, the collective contingent seemed to be a match in size to the Spartans' own. This makeup of an army, half citizen and half allied, was common to the armies of Republican Rome, too. Pre the disaster of 464, these contingents fought in their own ranks and divisions. If we accept the rigorous discipline that Spartan soldiers were trained with, and there's absolutely no reason to doubt it, the training of the periochic soldiers must have been equally grueling to produce soldiers capable of holding the line with fully fledged Spartiates. Post 464, they were brigaded within the ranks of the Spartan line making it even more imperative that they could hold their own. I imagine these Perioikoi soldiers had their own elite, possibly ancestral, warrior caste that were every bit as proud as the Spartans, and the spirit of emulation was surely great. We know of only one, or possibly two times that the Perioikoi rose in revolt, and both instances this occurred from the Messenian towns and not Laconian. There are a couple of accounts saying that as a collective they despise their supposed betters, but these come from very late in the Spartan story, and were possibly a result of increasing reliance on periodic manpower as homoioi numbers shrank. They obviously had some manpower, some independence of government. Why then did they not revolt scale with the Hallets and crush the outnumbered men of Lacatamonia? The answer to my mind is multi-layered. Things were likely not as bad as they could have been. The constant Hellenic presence was a reminder of that. These towns or communities were never in an alliance, and like other city-states across Greece, were largely independent. They were disparate as well, making coalition difficult, and the Spartans could have picked them off one by one. From the Dark Age to 371 BCE, no foreign invading force ever entered the dominion of the Laconians, so safety and protection certainly played a factor too. I also believe there may have been an element of pride in their position within society. We know from perioic artefacts, namely hoplite figurines, that they modelled themselves on the Spartiates, something that wouldn't take place had there been serious degrees of animosity between the two castes. There is little else to say here for the periocoi, except for that once Spartan power was broken, we saw them gain true independence over the 4th and 3rd centuries, and from that time onwards they began to grow more and more into true city-states. It seems that although not completely overbearing, Spartan rule stunted the growth of these places, and in the Spartans' defence, that is justified. The red-cloaked warriors were the big dogs in the Peloponnese, and they would brook no contender to their hegemony. This lack of growth can also be put down to the general lack of arable land left to the perioic communities after the Spartans had taken the fertile tracts for themselves, and incidentally, may have been why some of their towns avoided conversion into howlet status, that their land wasn't worth absorbing into the Kleros system, and therefore inconsequential to the Spartans. To finish with, we'll look at some of the other various subcastes in brief. The Hypomionis, which meant inferiors. The Mothakis, which translates as stepbrothers. The Trophimoi, or students. And lastly, the Neodomathis, which quite literally meant the new dwellers. The Hypomionis seemed to have become an increasingly large section of the population as the broad Spartan oligarchy narrowed significantly over the fifth century. We've looked at the reasons for this oliganthropia in the past, and it will come up often in the future, but a lot of its causes were tied to obscure land inheritance laws for both males and females, continued and protracted wars that depleted the fighting population, and a shift towards a proclivity for wealth and luxury. This inferior class, were either full-blooded Spartans that couldn't, in the first instance, afford the price of membership to the homoioi class, or ones that had fallen short in their ability to do so. That is, we assume, the inability to provide the required amount of produce for the communal dining tents. Membership to these was a fundamental to full Spartan enfranchisement. Despite her apparent egalitarianism, Sparta had vast disparities in wealth amongst the ruling class. There are always richer and poorer homoioi, those of good not-so-good-standing. These factors were exacerbated as the city's reach and empire expanded beyond the Peloponnese. According to a Lycurgan doctrine, it was against the law to sell a cleri, or land parcel, but how strictly this was enforced wasn't clear, and in lieu of other possessions, an indebted Spartan would have little else to offer his creditors. The ability of women to inherit land was also problematic and, given enough time over the generations, could have resulted in massive tracts of land held by heiresses, It has been estimated that by 400 BCE, around half of the land allotments available were in the hands of women, and they in turn became prizes highly sought after for marriage by the very richest of the Spartan bachelors, further coalescing more land in the hands of a few. It all resulted in a greater and greater pressure for young males to get enough land to supply their mess dues. And it became a massive problem for the state. The Kinnathon conspiracy of 399 BCE something we'll look at in very great detail in the future, will provide for us an example for the extent of the issue. kinathon was a trusted soldier of Sparta, serving in the elite guard regiment known as the Hippias. Clearly a well-educated man, he even performed special envoy roles for the board of the Eforit. From the outside looking in, you would think he was a valued and respected man of the community. He wasn't, and in fact, was a hippomione himself. His family were too poor to forward him the full rights of enfranchisement. Standing in the Agora one day, he counted amongst a crowd of 4,000 present, only 40 Homoyoi, and the realisation of the extreme unfairness within a society lauded for its equality became obvious to him. He hatched a plot with other Hippomionis, Perioikoi and helots to completely overthrow the government and level the playing field more to his and his ilk's favour. Discovered in his treason, he and his co conspirators had the dubious pleasure of being flogged and dragged via a horse through Sparta until they were dead. His final words cite the reasons for his conspiracy. He said in order that I might be inferior to no man in Lacedaemonia. In finishing with the inferiors, it should be noted that the only testimony regarding them comes from Xenophon's rather detailed account of the conspiracy mentioned above. The Sparta of 480 BCE, as seen, could muster 8000 homoioi, but by Xenophon's time, perhaps as few as 1500, and we are told by the Battle of Leuctra in 371, there are only 1000 left. This wasn't population decline. This was the increasing inability of the many to afford membership. The Motharchies were an interesting case, and I believe another attempt of the Spartan system to bolster its dwindling numbers. It's widely believed that this sub-caste was made up of either adopted males, possibly from the families of Hippomiones, or male children from Spartan-Hallet unions. Quite likely it was a mixture of both of these groups. Unlike the inferior class, these boys could achieve full citizenship, provided they completed the Agoga and were forwarded enough land to fulfil the fees of the Sicilia. Like the class before, they seem to be a relatively late addition to Laconian social strata. But became an important part of it. Two individuals who graced the pages of Spartan history in very bold strokes were Motharches. The first was named Gilippus. His father was banished for bribery and his mother was a helot. Nevertheless, he was sponsored by a rich homoioi and put through the regular raising and qualified to a sysitia. During the middle of the Peloponnesian war, the Athenians decided to open up another front and sent a large amphibious assault force to Sicily. the goal of conquering rich Syracuse. The Spartans sent one man to lead the resistance, and the job fell to Gallippus. With his assistance, the Syracusans defeated Nicaeus, the Athenian general, and crushed his army as well. An incredibly prestigious degree of trust forwarded to a man of relatively humble origins. But alas for the hero of this tale, as the saying goes, like father, like son. And Gallippus too ended his days in ignominy being prosecuted for embezzlement and spent the rest of his life in exile. The second Motharchies of note will be the focus of a special episode, his name is Lysander. With a halot mother and a poor, though descended from the sons of Heracles' father, he also rose to the top of Spartan society. After completing the agoge and qualifying for a mess hall, he had the prodigious honour of receiving the future king Agassilaus as his junior partner in the pederastic relationships that was common practice among Spartans. Most famously, as Navarch, or admiral of the new Spartan fleet bought with Persian gold, he brought Athens to heel and almost single handedly concluded the 27 year long Peloponnesian War. So, although not truly part of the Homoioi class, Lysander's life was one that was firmly within the upper echelons of Spartan power. Although not completely equal to the Spartiates on the societal hierarchy due to not being able to contribute their own mess fees, They were the very best next thing. Still, some were noted as having joined the Kinonthon conspiracy. Next, we look at the Trophimoi, the students. These were the sons of foreigners who were admitted to the Agoge and were raised as Spartiates. Now, don't ask me why anyone would want their son to willingly go through the Agoge, but there you have it. Naturally, it wasn't a common occurrence, or at least one not heavily attested. No surprises there. In my opinion. The most famous Trophimoi were named Grillus and Diodorus. Both went through and successfully completed the Agoge, and both were the sons of none other than Xenophon of Athens. Disillusioned with his home city for practically murdering his mentor Socrates, and furthermore, banished from the city for fighting on the side of the Spartans at one stage, he forged a friendship with King Agaxileos and was granted estates within the Peloponnese. A laconophile of the highest order, we have Xenophon to thank for the only contemporary account written by someone who had first-hand information and access to Spartan society. His constitution of the Lacedaemonians, which I use religiously, is an extremely important, though somewhat biased, work. We'll finish on the neo class, or the new members of the Demos or district. This term is a little misleading, as they had no real political rights, but compared to their former status, were no doubt happy with their new lot in life. Once again, a relatively late manifestation in the Spartan story. They seem to first appear during the decade after 430 BCE and the opening phases of the Peloponnesian War. A time of serious strife in Sparta, coupled with the ever-present oliganthropia, led to the offer of manumissions of helots who served with the Spartan armies. It isn't clear what term of service was required in exchange for emancipation, but from the 430s onwards, It is an event that happens with some regularity right down to the Battle of Leuctra. 2000 accompanied King Agassilaos on his campaigns in Ionia in the 390s. The word neodemathis broken down and translated comes from the words neo for new and demos for district with the suffix denoting people of the new district. Now these emancipated helots were by no means equal or completely free and they were most certainly not members of the district of Sparta it is believed that they were given lands on the fringes of Sparta's Peloponnesian holdings, and from there held a status akin to the perioque. Many of these subcastes we have just looked at were attempts by Sparta to increase the amount of manpower it could muster, but not at the expense of full enfranchisement. Like any great society before and after, when those who have power covered it selfishly and dispense with it unwillingly, eventually, they have to rely on others with no true vested interest in the state to protect it. The fall of the Western Roman Empire to barbarians who had been trained by the Romans in the first place is a great example of this. At the Battle of Lutra, on which Sparta's fate pivoted, she could only send 700 homoioi to join the other 10,000 troops marshaled to the cause. Aristotle writes that it was this dilution of Spartan manpower and the reliance on those not enfranchised that led to her ultimate defeat and decline. He is in part right, but at Lutra, the Lacedaemonians faced perhaps the greatest Greek general of the era, in Pamenondas and his sacred band. It was never going to end well for our heroes there. There are still a few minorities mentioned in the sources that I haven't gone into here, but as and when they become relevant to the narrative, I'll bring them in. It is enough with what we've gone through thus far to understand that there isn't a simple social hierarchy within Laconia and Messenia. An extremely complex dynamic is at play between the various classes. I hope this episode has given you an idea of the extent to which Spartan societal structures were a complete melting pot of different castes, the privileged, and the not-so. Despite its outward projection of good order, eunomia, and apparent equality, the reality was anything but that. Sparta was often riven with internal discord and revolt. A story of those with everything to lose against those with nothing. I'm often amazed or how it not only held itself together over a period of 500 years, but succeeded in becoming the dominant military power of Greece. Sometimes to every Greek's benefit, but sometimes not. Somehow, over several centuries in the lead up to the Persian invasions, this relatively nondescript town in the Lower Peloponnese produced an army of warriors so courageous, so competent, that they provided the backbone for Greek resistance and undeniably carried the land-based theatre of war themselves. No Sparta and Persia wins, and I'm not sure you can make the same case for the Athenians. I firmly believe that without the Spartan martial spirit, Xerxes simply added one more satrapy to his mighty empire. My mind staggers with how that alternate reality might play out down to our own times. The victories of the Hellenes in the Greco-Persian Wars have often been called the birth cry of Western civilizations, and it is to the Spartans that the lion's share of the spoil should go. Well folks, that concludes another instalment of the Spartan History Podcast. I mentioned in my introductions that this would be the second last episode covering and exploring the archaic phase of Spartan development. I turn now to the truly monumental task of trying to summarise it all so we can carry into the historical classical period a firm view of who the Lacedaemonians were and where they came from. Indeed, the degree of difficulty in doing so is, I believe, beyond my capabilities. I tried some of the dark arts and attempted to resurrect Xenophon so he could lend a hand but alas, I know less about necromancy than I do about history. So, I went one step better. In what will be, aside from meeting my partner and the birth of my son Leonidas, the greatest honour of my life, I get to sit down with my historical idol, Professor Paul Cartledge, with a view to harness his vast knowledge and expertise to help us get over this final hurdle. Paul is the greatest living expert on the Spartans, and a giant in the field of ancient Greek history, and just typing his name makes my hands shake. You will all know by now how many times I have referenced his work, and his academic genius has been central to my own beliefs and understandings of Sparta. I can scarcely believe my luck. It is a singular privilege to be able to share it with you, my cherished audience. We haven't locked in a firm day yet, but the episode will be out before the end of November, and will be a fantastic way to wrap up a year of podcasting. So join me then for episode 30, like Kurgan Sparta, a summary with Professor Paul Cartridge. Until then, dear listeners, take good care and speak soon. You can find me on Twitter, at Spartan underscore history, or on Facebook too, at Spartan History Podcast. If you like this episode, and are keen to hear more, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, wherever you catch your thoughts from, and leave a review. See you next time.